verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the uh, whole world shut down in early 2020 and the sick were put on ventilators and the healthy were quarantined into isolation, I had this one question for God. Help me find myself in the story. And when I said yes to a cross-country move that surprised me more than anyone else to a new place and a new people and the same pastoral work and a new pastoral place, I had this one question for God. Help me find myself in the story. And when Kirsten held it together until the elevator's doors closed in the hospital and then she wailed like I have never heard anyone wail before or since then after being told that the baby that she would carry for seven more months, that our little Amos, was likely to only have a lifespan of a few days. I had one question for God. Help me find myself in the story. And God has been faithful to answer in COVID lockdown. It was the prayers of the imprisoned apostle Paul as I tried to learn what it meant to lead a church that I was still uh, trusting was very much alive but could no longer see and relate to interpersonally. I found a biblical companion for lockdown. And in the move to Portland and the taking on the leadership of Bridgetown Church, it was Joshua on the banks of the Jordan, a miracle like God had done before, only this time it wasn't about deliverance, but about inheritance. I found a biblical companion for a new chapter in the community's ongoing story. And in the devastating news about Amos, it was Psalm 20, an old prayer of David's, one that got recited for generations about a God who hears the distressed. And I found a biblical companion for the helplessness of waiting. Uh, My point in all this is that one of the great gifts that we're given in the Bible is an invitation to discover a counterpoint for the present story we're living in the most ancient story. The great invitation of the biblical story is to discover the true story that I'm living in right now. And the subtle tragedy of the biblical story is that there's always been and always will be a way of reading that stops short of that discovery. A way of observing the story without finding myself within the story. In the words of John chapter 1, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God himself, unrecognized by the vast majority of people who saw him face to face and heard his voice. They were living in the biblical story, and yet they passed their days entirely unaware of it. And so are we, living in a biblical story. But only those who recognize the plot get to become active participants. So finding yourself in the story, that's what we've titled tonight's worship gathering. We've been in the midst of this teaching series uh, all about hearing God for a while now. And as an extension of that series, we thought, why don't we set aside an evening uh, looking into what is the story that God is writing commonly among us? Not just the word that he might be speaking to me individually, but maybe a word or words that he might speak to us collectively. And so that means that the teaching that I'm bringing you tonight is more prophetic than it is exegetical. 
which is fancy language for, I'm not here to chop up the biblical text in the way that you and I are used to. I'm here to offer you my admittedly less than 100% accurate read on the biblical counterpoints to the story that we're living as Bridgetown Church right now and the invitations that lie outside of that story that would move us from passive spectators to active participants in the biblical story that we're collectively a part of. So we got two parts tonight, story and participation. Story, uh, what is the biblical moment that we're presently living in as, as Bridgetown Church? And then participation. How do we move from spectators to active participants in that story? So first, story. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Contextually speaking, uh, the church had been birthed on the miraculous day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, and that led to explosive growth and massive expansion. It also led to a whole bunch of opposition. Most recently, that opposition turned out persecution with the public stoning of Stephen and the scattering of the disciples. So while there was fruitfulness in their story for sure, at this moment, the opposition had been looming larger than the breakthrough. That is, until Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus miraculously encounters Jesus and the church's leading opponent became the church's leading advocate, a turn in the story leading to the culminating summary statement then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. Now, I do want to be very careful to note that we know nothing of the type of persecution that we're reading about on the pages of the New Testament here. Though I do think it would be fair to say that coinciding with the pandemic, while there are signs of life for a time in this community, the opposition loomed larger than the breakthrough. And wouldn't it also be fair to call the past couple of years of regathering, while far from a pain-free time, a time of peace and strengthening for us as Bridgetown Church? Would you agree? I would argue that the magnetic counterpoints, though, that join our story to this moment of the biblical story come in the final statement. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. Now, there's no denying that we've increased in number. There's a whole lot of measurables that, uh, for that that are worth celebrating. But what's even more worth celebrating and what I'm really interested in is the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. So the fear of the Lord is one of the most common phrases in the whole of the Bible, but it's one that you'll almost never hear in the church. And that's mainly because the Hebrew translated into English is pretty tricky. Uh, fear gets us off on the wrong foot right away. I mean, we associate fear as a bad thing. The most frequent biblical command is fear not. No one likes fear. It's generally negative to be afraid. And then most of the time that fear of the Lord does get talked about in the church, the translation is inaccurate and, in, and unhelpful. It tends to be associated with things like, uh, be afraid of God because he might deal with you like he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. And while there might be a kernel of truth in there, it does make it difficult to know God as Abba if I'm equally afraid that he might set me on fire if I make a misstep. Now, here's the thing, though. In Hebrew, fear of the Lord is what's called a bound phrase, meaning it's one comprehensive term. 
Hey, you can't translate this term by picking the words apart like you can many other terms. It's not fear plus of plus the plus the Lord. It's more like fear of the Lord, like one long hyphenated term that only makes sense when you understand it as a coherent whole. And a contextual look at the over 138 occurrences of this word in the Hebrew Bible indicates that fear of the Lord has more to do with my attention than it does with trembling. See, most of the spiritual life is about paying attention to God and then participating. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's recognizing the story that God is writing and then actively participating in it. The spiritual life is to listen to the story that God is telling and participate in that story while living in a noisy, contested world. Let me give you one example of this. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur for for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink because its water was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? They've got nothing to drink. That is legitimate cause for concern and complaint, except for this one thing. I started reading in verse 22. The first 21 verses of this very chapter are a spontaneous song of celebration because God just parted the Red Sea, freeing the Israelites from the Egyptians. God has just done the most decisive miracle in recorded human history to this point, and you're complaining about camping provisions? Like we are 72 hours removed from the most decisively powerful act of God that has ever occurred on the planet. And you're checking the cooler and complaining that it's empty. What is the story that God is telling among us? And Israel, are you reacting to your circumstances today in concert with the story that God is telling? Or is the noise and contested world that you're living in dictating the story that you're living? Do you see what I'm talking about here? This is the fear of the Lord. To live in the fear of the Lord is to build my life on God's faithfulness, not on my fear. The, the fear of the Lord uh, it was more or less automatic after that Red Sea moment, right? The breakthrough moment. But the further we journey from the breakthrough, the more the fear of the Lord becomes a willed choice that we make, not just the automatic overflow. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. It is a willed choice to build my life on God's faithfulness, not my fear. Look, we're all going to fear something. Only the fear of the Lord is true. Only the fear of the Lord gives me a fear that overcomes all of my other fears. Spirituality is, can I live in a noisy, contested world of lies by a true redemptive story that's invading that world even right now? And that, my friends, is the fear of the Lord. It's paying attention to God and His story amidst all the competing voices. It is a fight for my imagination to see today, to see this circumstance, this person, this month, this moment, according to God's story and not my fear. And when your imagination is captive by the fear of the Lord, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit more or less just comes naturally. Uh, encourage me literally means to put courage into. 
It means that the courage required to keep in step with that story God is writing in the midst of this noisy and contested world of ours is given to us directly by the Holy Spirit. So can I just invite you into a personal reflection for a moment? In the last 18 to 24 months of your life, how has the Holy Spirit put courage directly into you? Like, have you encountered God's presence and power in new ways? Have you been ministered to directly by him? Have you been healed? Have you been prophesied over? Have you been picked out of the crowd? Have you had your past redeemed? Have you had your pain or your loss restored? Have you seen God move in power through you? I mean, my limited vantage point on this community of ours would tell me that in a brief window of time, many among us have had experiences with God that we'll be telling stories about in 10, 20 years from now. And biblically, there's a name for that, encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God dealing directly with you and I, putting his courage into our hearts. Why? So that we can live in a noisy, contested world by the fear of the Lord and not the fear of our circumstances. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so Acts 9.31, then the church gathered throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in uh, numbers. Okay, so if that's our story, how do we get in on it? How do we avoid the subtle tragedy of living in a biblical story but missing it? How do we become those fumbling and stumbling apostles on the pages of the New Testament that are getting in and actively participating in the joy of a God that's writing stories among us even here and now? So let's move from story to participation. I want to offer you four lanes of participation. My guess is that more than one of these will relate to you somehow, but that one of them will be a bullseye. Uh, Like it'll be a language for making sense of the the disparate pieces of what God is doing in your life of late, because that's how the prophetic works. Uh, Someone offers language like words or a picture that then take the jumbled pieces of my story and put them together in a way that I can suddenly see and make sense of and then live into. And I'll just say one more time, my aim is not to preach exegetically, but prophetically, and that means that I'm sharing tonight with some risk. We prophesy in part, so I'm bound to be off-center from time to time. And it means that the words that I share in risk also have the potential to produce biblical life here and now within you, because that's the fruit of prophecy. So four lanes, humility, purity, generation, opposition. And I'm gonna try to make this as easy to follow as possible, by tracing a direct line from this mo- our moment in the book of Acts back to the Exodus narrative for every last one of these words. So that's the pattern we're going to follow. Cool? Yeah. All right. First, humility. Uh, every year as a family, Kirsten, the boys, and myself, we memorize a Sabbath psalm that we recite together every Friday to begin the Sabbath. And this year it's been Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. I'll praise the Lord all my life. I'll sing praise to my God as long as I live. Put not your trust in princes and human being who cannot save. When his breath departs, he returns to the ground. On that very day, his plans come to nothing. It's touch heavy for toddlers, right? (laughs) See, this psalm opens with this really blunt invitation to humility, to recognize how fleeting my life is and how fragile even the strongest and most stable among us really are. But this psalm is a declaration. It's not a dirge. 
It's not a wallowing prayer, it's a formative one. You see, humility is good news because it exposes the counterfeits and it points to the truth. I will never forget sitting in a packed auditorium as a pastor in my mid-twenties. As a, a pastor, an older pastor, I was honored for a Lifetime of Ministry Achievement Award. And I was among those who stood in the standing ovation, clapping, and tears streamed down my face as I prayed under my breath, Oh God, let me finish the race like that. And within that year, he was the subject of a very public, very big scandal of which he was guilty. The previous era of church in this country has been guilty or has been built on celebrity and we are surveying the wreckage. And that can make us cynical or it can make us humble. And the former leads to more wreckage and the latter leads to presence and power. A byproduct of a community living in the fear of the Lord is that it drives out every trace of celebrity. So from Acts back to Exodus, the Exodus journey includes these two different sea crossings. There's the Red Sea, which occurred when one man, Moses, in a moment of incredible faith, raised his staff and God parted the waters. The second, the Jordan River, occurred when an elder from each tribe stood ankle deep in the waters, holding the Ark of the Covenant, waiting for God to make a way. The first miracle came through one man with great faith. The second miracle took a community standing together in faith. There are two places where celebrity position and reputation disappear whether we want them to or not. Two places that the church of the future will rediscover and live from again. And they are the subject of the second half of Psalm 146. They're what make humility good news, uh, which is entirely about setting our hope on God who's found in prayer and proximity. So, so prayer is the great leveler of the, of the spiritual life. We all come with equal access in prayer because of the grace that's been won us by Jesus. Prayer is the place where eloquence does not matter, but honesty does. It's where God detests the eloquent prayer of the proud Pharisee, but draws near to the sinner beating his breast in humility. Prayer is where celebrity counts for nothing. In prayer, the one and only star is revealed. In the words of the psalm, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. So don't put your hope in the next celebrity or in the face or voice of a person. They're dust and so are their plans. But there is one who remains faithful forever. And then there's proximity. The psalmist continues on from there, naming the predictable places that God can be found among the hungry, the imprisoned, the oppressed, the disabled, the fatherless, the foreigner, and the widow. You know who's not very interested in the quality of the most consumed Christian podcast today or the masters on that upcoming worship album? The hungry in line tonight at the rescue mission? And the addicted who want to get clean but feel trapped? The single mom who's in a cycle of poverty that she's ill-equipped to escape? The, the sorts of folks that Jesus spent the bulk of his days with and then built his movement on. Proximity to the poor drains celebrity of its pomp and it reduces the way of Jesus to its essence. So have you experienced deeper invitations into prayer and or proximity in these recent days? Have you been drawn increasingly in recent months to a life radically based on prayer and or one that rubs shoulders with the poor? I just wonder 
if that might be the Spirit's tug into a humility that allows you to get in on the story that God is writing. Because the story God's writing among us is not a story of a great deliverer, but it's one of a community who is together waiting on our inheritance. Second lane, purity. Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. In recent Western church history, there has been nothing more unfashionable than legalism. At times, it seemed like such an important value that, that we put on display a way of Jesus that cost you almost nothing in terms of lifestyle adjustment. I do see, though, increasingly among us, this magnetism to consecration, like a hunger for purity. And purity not for the sake of legalism, but for the sake of ascending the hill of the Lord, that I might stand in his holy place and know his presence. And I hear more and more about many of you sensing the Spirit's invitation to set aside neutral appetites to devote more of your heart to the Lord. Like a restraining of good. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about neutral, fine, but lesser appetites uh, in the name of inflaming greater hungers. So let's take that from Acts back into Exodus. As a part of the overlap for heaven and earth, when God gives a instructions to Moses, he talks about this one tribe of priests that are going to live among them, that are going to symbolize God's covenant of purity to their lives. And this purity is going to be represented by their work and their dress and everything. And then later in the story, in number six, we read about a voluntary group of radicals in Israel called the Nazarites. The Nazarite vows found in Numbers chapter 6, it's an open invitation. Anyone could take the Nazarite vow for any period of time. And to become a Nazarite was to fast from three things. They did not drink alcohol, they did not cut their hair, and they did not come in contact with the dead. And that had absolutely nothing to do with legalism and absolutely everything to do with symbolism. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine. A haircut from time to time is a good idea. And there's nothing wrong with helping carry the casket at someone's funeral. It's not about the rules. The Nazarite vow was a three-part summary of the cleansing rituals the high priest would undergo before entering the Holy of Holies on the most holy day, which happened once a year. The priest purified himself before coming into the presence of God, and so the Nazarites took that purity and made it a lifestyle so that they symbolically were always prepared to enter God's presence any moment, anywhere, at any time of day. So how can a distracted, indulgent, crowd-conditioned people be moved? How can accidental conformists come alive again in a world that's lulled them into sleepwalking? Not by a prophetic word, but by a prophetic life. One so alive that it wakes the rest of us up. Purity is not about legalism. It's about symbolism. It's about what the purity of your life points to. You see, when I say purity, what I'm talking about is exposing idols and exposing life without saying a word. Idols, uh, we don't use that word a whole lot anymore, but the concept is something that we're really familiar with. Andy Crouch defines an idol as something that promises everything and costs nothing, but then in the end uh, takes everything from us and gives nothing back to us. So just a couple of of examples. One, I want to be successful, so I do whatever I take to advance, or whatever it takes to advance in my career. I appease my boss, I put in the hours, I attend the conferences, I swim in the right social circles, and for a while it works. I feel significant. But then, of course, a couple of years in, I uh, can't find the 
part of me that used to be able to relax and enjoy and just be present with other people. I can't find a way just to be present and content and alive with another human being. I got exactly what I wanted, but it did not deliver what I thought I, I would get from it. And then it took all these other things from me in the end. What is that? That's an idol. An idol makes promises up front, breaks those promises, and then robs you in the end. Second example, I want to be desired, so I obsess about my appearance. I perfect my body, I join a gym, I use all the best products, I fill my closet with my ideal style, and for a while that works. It makes me feel amazing. But then over time, I lose myself in trying to be desired by everybody else, and the good feeling goes away quickly, and I'm left with better abs, a clear complexion, a more expensive wardrobe, and a deep pit of insecurity. I got exactly what I wanted, but it didn't give me what I thought it promised, and it took all these other things from me in the end. This is how idols work. And purity exposes idols. It lives in a place where lies become universally accepted, and it exposes the truth. But purity also exposes life, meaning it's an invitation to something better. There's cost up front to purity, but the promise outweighs the cost in the end. And some of you, have been sensing these invitations into consecration, uh, like the Spirit is pointing at the Nazarites, saying, do you see this? Do you, don't dismiss me. What if it's not about legalism? What if it's about symbolism? What if I'm inviting you to restrain neutral appetites, to inflame greater hungers, so that your life becomes a symbol of my promises to the people around you? What if it's not about legalism, but it's about symbolism? And I just wonder if for those of you who have had this magnetic draw to consecration like you haven't before, if that might for you be an invitation to participation. Third lane, a generational shift. For years, as a young pastor in an urban context, I used to pray some version of this prayer, oh God, there is some wise older couple who have been elders at their church in the Midwest for decades, and they're just about to retire to a golf course in Florida. Would you intercept their dreams with your convicting spirit and redirect them in a way that will make their children think they're nuts to invest not in a retirement home in Florida, but in a dingy apartment in downtown Portland? Would you draw people into our story like that? And God has answered that prayer in exactly not the way I was asking. <laughs> there's, this, uh, there's this scene in the movie 13 Days where uh, JFK says to Robert Kennedy, we're still young, but I think we're the old men now. And some of you have been looking around and this realization has been clicking. You know, I'm still young. But I think I'm called to be a father or a mother now. And this is what God began to do in me. He began to answer the prayer by saying, don't ask me to send wisdom, ask me to become wisdom. He began saying things to me like, Tyler, you're still a young man, but it's time to be a father now. So from Acts back to Exodus, Exodus 33, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, and they called it the tent of meeting. Now uh, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to that tent that was outside the camp. It's this beautiful passage about the intimacy of God with God that Moses led by. 
The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And of course, Joshua, this young aide, then went on to become the man who led by that same intimacy the journey that Moses started. We're still young, but I think we're the old men now. Listen to me. Some of you are still young men or women, but I do wonder if God is calling you up to become a father or a mother right now. Can I tell you what I see bubbling up at Bridgetown Church? I see a generational shift. I see young men becoming fathers and young women becoming mothers. I see kids becoming leaders. I see Joshua's who don't want to leave the tent, the meeting place, because it all starts and ends with intimacy. Some of the young people in this church, not because I know the stories, but because I believe this in the spirit, some of the young people in this church have been spending the secret hours, the early morning hours and the late night hours seeking the presence of God. Some of the teenagers in this church have been occupying the boiler room, drawn to intercede. We're still young, but I wonder if we're called to become the old souls now. A generational shift. I'm talking to you, 20-somethings. I'm talking to you, teenagers. I'm talking to you, middle schoolers. Do you hear me? Some of you have sensed God calling you up, calling to lead in your young age, and this can be a moment, a moment. Right now, tonight, this can be a moment when you look around and go, I'm still young but I think I'm an old soul now. And when God calls you up, it's fear of the Lord or fear of the assignment, but there's no in-between. You either run from the call or you let Him form you into the call. But my sense is that many of you can hear Him calling. And then finally, there's opposition. Speaks, uh, Pete spoke to us this morning about how opposition comes right when you're on the cusp of breakthrough. The fear of the Lord becomes essential in the face of opposition. When times are good, it's honestly hard to know if you're living by the fear of the Lord or not. When the noisy, contested world is roaring loudest, that's when you need the fear of the Lord to see clearly. And my sense is that some among us have recently entered into an unexpected season of difficulty. And you've walked long enough in your life to know that sometimes life is just hard. And so I do imagine that you've walked into an unexpected season of difficulty and you're wavering between calling it opposition, calling it spiritual, or just calling it life. So from Acts back to Exodus, Exodus 14, there's a moment when Moses led Israel across the Red Sea. And at the very end of that account, we read this. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. During the last watch of the night, the God they had known for many steps as deliverer, suddenly they meet as defender. Some of you are well acquainted with God as deliverer. You've walked with him long enough and far enough to have collected stories and to know his power. During the last watch of the night, I saved this one for last, because I think it's for just a few of us. And I think it's because very recently you have entered into difficulty and you don't know if it's spiritual or not. During the last watch of the night, the God you've known as deliverer reveals himself as your defender. 
For some, that's a word that makes the scattered pieces of your story fit together into a coherent picture. For others, it does not in this moment, but it will in the days to come. So there you go. That's a story, an ancient one from Acts 9 that's alive here and now, but a story not to read, but to participate in. How do we get in on that story? Through humility, purity, a generational shift, and a defender amidst opposition. So I want to land where we started. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The great invitation of the biblical story is to discover the true story that I'm living in right now. The great tragedy of the biblical story is that there's always been and will always be a way of reading that story that stops short of discovery, a way of observing from a distance but not finding myself within the story. We prophesy in part. But I do wonder if there's something I said tonight that met your life like a bullseye. Something that was less like an intellectual insight and more like a seed of life that can grow and become fruitful within you if you let it. If everything I've said tonight can and will fall away, but if there's a word of life in there, a word so alive, it's run from the call or let him form you into the call. But nothing in between. So Pete, why don't you come up and let's have a conversation in front of everyone. Yeah? So uh, Pete was chatting this morning and uh, briefly mentioned the Asbury Revival. And a lot of what I shared tonight began because Pete and I were connecting uh, just on a Zoom call and we're saying, what's God up to uh, at KXC? And he was saying, what's God up to at Bridgetown? And as we began to share, we discovered some counterpoints in our story and uh, I thought, well, why don't I just try to name what I see God doing in Bridgetown's story, and then we see where there are honest parallels, if we can trace them, and, and then maybe live into them more fully. So first, Pete, I just mentioned something called the Asbury Revival. So why don't you just quickly get us on the same page on what that even means? Yeah, so just before I do that, can I just name a couple of things just listening to yeah. Tyler teach? One thing, we regularly say this at KXC, the church my wife and I lead, the story you live in is the story you live out. So you want to be unbelievably intentional about what stories you're living in. And part of the task of a leader, this is what Tyler was just doing, is, is naming the season of this moment or naming the chapter of the story we're currently in. Um, and our response as those following is to discern, is that right? Like, is that the season? Is that the chapter we're in? And if it is right, if Tyler and the leadership team are discerning correctly, this is the chapter, this is the season, our response isn't passivity, it's to step all in. And essentially, the Asbury outpouring that in many ways was an embodiment of these ingredients that you've articulated, it began on the 8th of February. Um, a group of students went to their compulsory chapel service at Asbury University, which is situated in this tiny town, Wilmore in Kentucky. So they went to the compulsory chapel service. It was an unremarkable chapel service. I spoke to the guy called Zach who preached. He said his talk tanked. It went really badly. He like messaged his wife afterwards and said, I've had a howler. Can you put some fried food in the oven? I'm on my way home. But it, at the end That's of... So I, I literally just texted Kirsten that while delivering this teacher. <laughs> yeah, comfort food. It's a thing for pastors. Um, anyway, 
the chapel service came to an end and they said the blessing and the students left but 16 stayed behind and they went to the front and they clung to the altar desperately wanting to get right with God and God's spirit fell in power and that was the beginning of what then became 16 days of 24-7 prayer Um, and rumors began to spread on the campus something's happening at the chapel we've all left but something's happened we need to get back we need to get back so dozens started returning and then hundreds started returning and soon the room similar size to this 2,000 people like rammed in encountering the presence of God and then good news like that spreads and people all over the world were like hang on like we want to go and see and witness what God was doing and the thing that was most remarkable about the gatherings was that the presence of God was just so thick in the room no one wanted to leave so there were stories of students like dragging their mattresses into the sanctuary because they didn't want to go home to sleep imagine that happening here at Bridgetown like students like literally bringing in beds like I don't want to go home to sleep because the presence of God is so thick in the room I don't want to leave for a moment other students were packing three meals a day to come to the sanctuary because they didn't want to step outside of the presence of God this is like Joshua in the story you just mentioned Mm -hmm. didn't want to step outside the sanctuary for a moment because the presence of God was so thick so when I walked into this room like I I wasn't sure what to expect but as I looked around it, it looked kind of underwhelming at one level There was a band on stage. They were all in their early 20s. The music was like average, if I'm being really honest. Like there was no lighting rig. The the sound wasn't remarkable. No screens with graphics. No lyrics on screens. People just singing simple choruses. There were moments where a student would get up and read a verse from scripture. And there might be like a seven minute talk, but very, very simple. So nothing impressive in terms of human, you know, terms. But... When you began to look around and you saw that people were infatuated with the person of Jesus, not mesmerized by production, but mesmerized by his presence. And that's something I see as like one of the generational shifts. Some of us as leaders, like we've been going after like excellence in our gatherings. It needs to be incredible to draw in the younger generation. And we found out through the Asby pouring that what the younger generation actually really want is an encounter with the presence of Jesus. And like just to name a couple of things that tap into some of your four points. Yeah. So it started with the presence of God falling upon 16 or so students, right? And when the presence of God is so thick in a room, you begin to like yearn for more. Like there really wasn't any passivity. Everyone was leaning in. You're like, I want more of God's presence. It's so beautiful. It's so pure. I want to draw closer to his presence. And it became really obvious without anyone teaching about sin. It became really obvious to the young people in the room, the students that like to get closer, I need to get rid of the stuff within me that's a barrier. So people started to flock to the front to confess their sins. There wasn't a call of like, you need to get right with God. The presence of God in the room was doing all of the work people were just like I need to get right with God and they started coming to the front I've never seen like cues upon cues just to get to the front to confess their sins and we're not talking like a a two or three minute here's just an overview of some of some of my sinful behavior and thinking people were spending half an hour at the front 
pouring out their guts. And you'd have thought that would create a heavy atmosphere. Thousands of students confessing their darkest thoughts, sexual sins, suicidal ideation, all of this stuff. But it wasn't heavy in the room because they confessed it, left it all at the altar, left it all at the cross. And then they came back to their seats, honestly, like skipping, like radiating joy. The atmosphere in the room was joy-filled. Like people were getting right with God, set free from addictions, and the atmosphere was unbelievable like nothing I've experienced before. This deep desire to get right with God, this is the Psalm 24. Yeah. I, I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. Like, don't we want to ascend the hill of the Lord and experience his presence? Well, the psalmist says you're going to need clean hands and you're going to need a pure heart. And that's what these young guys were doing. Mm. And this was a fun moment. Like about a day in, they realized that central to what the Lord was doing was this, this idea of consecration. Like, we need consecrated hearts, right? So what they did is they took what we would call like the vestry. Like most churches have a green room, which is like snacks for the VIPs, the really important people, right? And they were like, sack the green room. We don't need a green room. We need a consecration room. So anyone that went on stage to lead worship or to share a verse or a passage from scripture before they got on stage, they had to spend half an hour in the consecration room. Now, in the consecration room, they got on their knees and they started confessing their sins. And there was a team of intercessors in the room praying over them, prophesying over them, receiving their um, confession. So by the time these 19, 20, 21-year-olds got on stage, the purity of the worship, like, it was so, so beautiful. Mm. Like, again, it was just like, unbelievable and I came back to London and, and basically said hey I've seen something here purity in worship really matters like we would rather an average musician with a consecrated heart than an unbelievable musician without a consecrated heart right so we want to do things to the best of our ability for the glory of God but more important than any of that is consecration and I, I think I saw something, I saw a number of things at Asbury, like ingredients that God really loves. Here's another one, the humility. You've only asked one question, so this is still the answer. This is great, one. keep going. Um, humility, like pushing back on the celebrity culture, right? So these young guys were leading worship and, and all these well-known worship artists that you would probably know and listen to um, began to watch some of the live stream and saw that the worship, musically speaking, was pretty ropey. And they're like, don't worry, we're happy to jump on a plane to come and rescue the car crash that is the kind of music that's happening. Um, and, and, and the response was, do you know what? It's cool these 19, 20 year olds are doing an unbelievable job. So we don't need you to come in and use this platform to build your ministry. But if you wanna come and soak in the presence of God, then feel free. So apparently some of these huge worship artists were traveling into Wilmore in Kentucky and were in the room watching a 19 year old butcher one of their great songs, right? <laughs> but that's humility. That's purity, learning from the purity of heart of the 19, 20, 21 year olds. They had another um, principle. They were like, we're only gonna use first names because honestly, when you begin to use surnames, we begin to develop profiles. So when people were asking me, what's your name? They only wanted to, to know my first name. 
Um, so when I met the guy who preached the sermon, like, I still don't know his surname. He's just Zach. I don't know how to search for him on social media because when you do Zach, there's a lot of people that come up. Like, but it, it means it's really hard to turn him into a celebrity because he's just Zach. Like, and they were doing that. No one was known by their full names. It was like, we go low, like we decrease so that God might increase and this is all about him and all about his glory. Mm. I have just one other question for you and then let's get to some ministry, but you're from London. You traveled to Wilmore, Kentucky because some college students were leading a chapel service that didn't stop. Why? Like, like why would you go all of that way? I mean this in the most personal way. Yeah. What is within you, yeah. Pete Hughes, yeah. that said, I have to get there? That's a good question. And I think it's desperation, hmm. probably. You know, I've been praying for a move of the Spirit. And, and like you guys, desperation levels in our community are just constantly rising. I know the best that I have to offer in this moment in terms of preaching, teaching, leadership. I know it's not enough. And I've kind of come to the end of myself. I'm like, Lord, what London needs and what the UK needs and what Portland needs, it's an outpouring of your spirit. And, and I don't have any levers to pull. All the levers I know how to pull, I've been pulling and nothing's been happening. And I'm like, Lord, I, I need a move of your spirit. So when I heard that something was happening, I was like, oh, should I go? It's like a cost to the family. But like, I'm so desperate. I'll travel anywhere. If there's even just a 5% chance I'm going to catch fire or catch something, I'm, I'm going to take that risk and I'm going to get on a plane. And I think that was modeled to me by my dad. So my dad was a pastor and he was one of the key leaders in a movement in the UK that birthed New Wine and Soul Survivor and other ministries. It's become known as the Charismatic Renewal Movement. But when he was fairly young in ministry, he heard that there'd been an outpouring of the Spirit in Anaheim. Um, and he was like, I'm just hearing these stories and I'm so desperate. I, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm just going to put myself in a place where I'm going to get some prayer and I'm going to pray that God sets my heart on fire. Mm. And my dad, his heart was set on fire and he came back and led a pretty dead church into renewal and that church came alive. And many other churches experienced something like that. And I think I witnessed that and as a kid, I benefited from that and I was like, do you know what? If the fire is falling, I will go anywhere to be in a place where I can be under that. Now, here's the thing. This is what I learned. Some moves of the spirit, you go and you catch something, and then someone comes and imparts it. Some things of the spirit can be caught, but there are other things that I don't think it's about impartation. It's more like it's a river that you step into. Like, so what I witnessed to Asbury, it's not just reserved for Asbury. Like, I traveled around a little bit, and a few weeks ago, we had a, a big conference in the, the UK, the leadership conference, where people from all over the world were coming. And listening to the stories, everyone was saying the same thing, the water levels are rising. Like, we don't want to just celebrate Asbury. We're beginning to see it in London. We're beginning to see it in Melbourne. We're beginning to see it in New York. And people are just like, we're beginning to experience it too. Like, 
a hunger for the presence of God, like a younger generation basically tearing up the scripts, the secular narratives that they've been handed, saying, this doesn't work for me. I want a better story. I want to live in a better story. And this kind of like gravitational pull towards the church and a gravitational pull towards the, the presence of God. And, and I want to say to you as a church family, spending the day here, it's stirring here. Like a hunger for God's presence. It is. It is. So, you don't need to head to Asbury. They're not doing the gatherings anymore anyway. But you don't need to head to Asbury or anywhere else. You basically need to get on your knees here and basically say, I want to ascend the hill of the Lord God and I'm really desperate. And and I'm going to stay on my knees until you come. And I know that what you really love is, is clean hands and a pure heart. So I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to confess my sin. I I don't want my sin to get in the way. I'm so hungry for your presence. I will humble myself, acknowledge my brokenness, acknowledge my sin and ask that you prepare me because I want to ascend the hill. I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. And more than that, I, I want to knock on the door of heaven. This is the second part of Psalm 24 for the sake of Portland and say, Lord, like swing wide the gates of heaven. Because I want the king of glory to come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Like that's what we're contending for. So I'm deeply encouraged by the spiritual hunger in this room. And I guess I want to say, if you carry on with those levels of hunger, and if that hunger continues to increase, there are some really exciting days that lie ahead for you.